Welcome to The Binge Cure with Dr. Nina. Today, you are going to learn how to outsmart emotional eating and live a life of happiness and joy without giving up the foods you love. Now, here is Dr. Nina. Hi, welcome to The Binge Cure with Dr. Nina. I'm your host, Dr. Nina Savelle Rocklin. I'm a psychoanalyst specializing in eating disorders. And I am here to help you liberate yourself from emotional eating, take control of your life, and feel good in your body, all without dieting, spending hours in the gym, or counting a single macro. If you would like to call into the show today, uh, we're going to be talking about struggling with self-loathing and binge eating. I'm going to give you five steps on how to break free. If you'd like to call in, the number is 866 472-5792. And if you're on the Instagram live feed, you can always drop me a comment. Okay, so here we go. So many people, by the way, why did I decide to do this? Last week, literally five people said the following words. I hate myself. I can't stand myself. I hate myself. Over and over. Five different people. And I, I it's so pervasive. I hear it all the time. And so I really wanted to do a show on, you know, the connection between self-loathing, self-loathing, self-hatred and binge eating and give you some steps to break free. So if you have ever struggled with feelings of self-loathing after a binge or reach for food when you're mad at yourself or you're truly hating yourself, you might wonder which came first, the binge or the self-hatred? And it turns out they are very much intertwined. And if you've ever said, I hate myself, especially after a binge, then this is for you. So first, let's just understand the roots of self-hatred. Because our journey of, of self-perception, how we think about ourselves, it begins when we're kids. Well, kids are like sponges, right? They, they absorb, they internalize all the messages from their surroundings, especially from the people who are taking care of them, the people who are important to them. And that's why negative or harmful messages can leave, lead, they leave just such lasting scars. And often children don't realize that the way that they are being treated is either just downright wrong, or there's some kind of misattunement, or there's just something that not quite right. They're not getting their needs met. They don't look at it like, hmm, I'm not really getting the treatment that I need or require. They internalize the belief that there's something wrong with them. It must be me. I must be bad in some way. That's why I'm getting this treatment or that's why I'm not getting what I really need. And this can lead to binge eating, turning to food to cope for comfort to fill up symbolically so many different reasons, which is followed by guilt and shame, which just reinforces these negative beliefs. Because shame, shame is a feeling that there's something wrong with you. Guilt is, oh, there's something wrong with what I did. Oh, I shouldn't have eaten all those cookies. That's guilt. Eh, shouldn't have done it. Shame is, I shouldn't have eaten those cookies. And because I did it, there is something deeply wrong and flawed with me. And then you feel bad because you can't control those binge urges. You can't control binge eating because it's not about oh, it's not about control, folks. More on that later. And that just further fuels that self-loathing. 
But back to childhood, when a kid experiences some kind of trauma, big T trauma or little t trauma, big T is just the the bad, horrible thing that happens. Little t trauma is are the 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 thousand small cuts, the thousand cutting remarks, the thousand ways in that which they're ignored or told they're stupid or something like that. They internalize the belief that there is something wrong with them, which leads to self-loathing, self-hatred, and food for comfort. Again, children don't think, hmm, there's something wrong with the way I'm being treated here. They think there is something wrong with me, and that's why I'm getting treated badly. I must deserve it. So kids mistake abuse, neglect, or misattunement for punishment. And that's really important. They believe they're being punished for being bad, uh, that there's something wrong with them instead of recognizing that they're being mistreated. And then, of course, later in life, people think they're bad or unworthy because they can't control their eating. There you go. Again, hello, self-loathing. Hello, self-hatred. So let's say goodbye, self-loathing, and goodbye, self-hatred. Oh, by the way, uh, before I go on to that, other roots of self-hatred are perfectionism. You know, I you know, if you hate yourself because you you can't be perfect all the time, you you make mistakes. Oh my gosh, you're human. That can also lead to self-hatred. Um and to preemptively attacking yourself before someone else can do it. Like if you're like I already hate myself, then you already feel bad about yourself and it protects you from external criticism that that might come at you down the line because not everybody loves us. I know it's hard to believe that. It's hard to accept that not everyone loves us. So instead of um, saying, hey, you know, I am my perfectly imperfect self and I'm I'm not for everyone, but the right people are going to gravitate towards me. It becomes, oh, I've been rejected. I must be bad. There must be something rejectable about me. So let me give you an example. And this is Dana's story. All names have been changed. That is not Dana's real name. Dana is not Dana, but let's call let's call her Dana. So she struggled with severe binge eating disorder and feelings of total self-hatred that it, that intrusively permeated her thoughts at all times. She was constantly hating on herself. When Dana started binging when she was an adolescent, uh, and she dealt with a father who would display like like he was a rageaholic. So he would periodically just go into these rages and he would be irrationally critical and he would emotionally neglect her as well. And a mother who didn't really protect her from that. And so Dana interpreted her father's verbal attacks because they were attacks and lack of nurturing as evidence that she was unworthy of love. She thought she was, as she put it, a bad seed at her core. She was like, yeah, I, I, I seem like, you know, a perfectly decent person, but like if people really knew the real me, they'd see that there's something just defective about me. There's just something wrong with me. And she thought if she could just figure out what was so bad about herself and make herself good, she'd get a loving father. And of course, one one way that she chose was, hey, maybe if I lost weight, if I lost weight, I'd gain my father's love and approval, which just led her into the diet binge cycle. 
and made things worse. So this strategy for hope, which is let me figure out what's wrong with me and make myself right so I get the good treatment that I want and deserve, ended up just becoming a fixed belief that there was, in fact, something deeply and terribly wrong with her. And as an adult, she was unrelentingly self-critical to herself. Basically, she treated herself as her father had treated her. And the only thing that turned off that mean, critical, harsh, awful, terrible voice was food, was binging. So binging brought her temporary relief from this criticism, this self-hatred, this self-criticism by, by blocking out right that, that hostility. Because, you know, when you're binging, you're in the zone, you're in the binge zone. You're, it's like you're not thinking, you're not feeling, you're sort of in this numb, automatic, like, blur of eating. And so how did Dana create change? By coming to terms with how the past was haunting her, which it was, she was now treating herself as she was treated. She was reenacting her past. That's what was going on. And she began to, to, to deconstruct that, to heal, to mourn, to grieve, but also to rewrite those old scripts. And so she challenged the shame that was to her so real. Like she really thought there was something just wrong about her. She was the bad seed. And then she slowly began to recognize, no, there was nothing bad about her, nothing fundamentally and intrinsically bad about her. She just felt bad. And remember, when kids are treated badly, they feel bad, they think they are bad. And that's the start of this. And so as she started treating herself more kindly and reasonably and basically the way she treated everyone else in her life, because she did not talk to anybody else the way she talked to herself. When she began to direct that energy and kindness and understanding towards herself and be reasonable, she stopped attacking herself. And as she stopped attacking herself, guess what? She stopped wanting to binge. She didn't need to escape her own mean voice. She was putting it on mute. She was getting rid of it. And the, the less she was mean to herself, the less she needed to binge to get away from herself. And eventually, she was able to feel good about herself overall. Like I said, we're all perfectly imperfect. Self-acceptance is not, I love myself so much. Self-acceptance is, I love parts of myself and parts of myself not so much, but overall, I accept me and I feel pretty good about me. When she was able to feel good about herself, she stopped binging. So you see, binging, binge eating disorder has nothing to do with food, really. That may sound strange, but thoughts and beliefs lead to feelings, lead to behavior. The behavior with binge eating is just using food in some way to cope, to distract, to numb for some people, to celebrate, to different reasons. To, uh, if you don't have enough fun in your life, maybe binging is the only thing that's fun, even though it's also not fun. So Dana's story really looks at and exemplifies how the past, our past impacts our present. And by challenging that past, by working through it, by seeing the bridge between the past and the present, that's how we release ourselves from those early traumas 
And that's how we eventually resolve that self-hatred and with it, any kind of disordered eating. And this, this notion about the past is really important because as a psychoanalyst or depth psychologist, which is the same thing, depth psychology is more the, the user-friendly term. I guess people hear psychoanalysts and they think Freud. Uh, yeah, <laughs> nothing Freudian about me, folks. But uh, as a depth psychologist, psychoanalyst is what I am, um, I really look at how does the past affect your present. It's not talking about what happened as it happened in the past. That just gets you nowhere. I mean, you heal a little bit, but you really need to look at how the past is alive in your present. How So for Dana, she internalized the relationship with her father who was super mean, super harsh, always mad at her, really critical. And she became super mean, super harsh, always mad at herself, all of that. And by recognizing how she'd identified and internalized that, that relationship, she could begin to change it. And that's why it's really powerful to look at how are you being haunted by your past? Let's do some ghost busting, right? Okay. So in terms of break, breaking free from self-loathing, self-hatred, and binge eating, the first is to understand the roots of self-hatred. Where did it come from? Nobody is born going, I hate myself. We learn to hate ourselves. We learn it and we can unlearn it and learn a new way. So the second is uh, recognizing, by the way, that binge eating is a form of escape. It's a way of escaping yourself. So it's you're, you're using food to um, guard against experiencing something painful or difficult. Like in Dana's case, she was trying to get away from her own mean voice. And often when people struggle with binge eating, when they need the most compassion, comfort, understanding, encouragement, they attack themselves instead. Since it's impossible to attack yourself and soothe yourself, eating becomes, again, a way to escape those mean voices and give yourself sort of soothing as well. So it's a tough cycle, right? That inner voice gets really loud. It tells you, you're not good enough. There's something wrong with you. And then eating, then it becomes the only thing that will muffle that noise, right? And it becomes not just a way to, you know, fill up, but to fill emotional gaps as well. And then there's the guilt after a binge, which, in, which just makes those inner critics louder again, and the whole cycle continues over and over and over. Let me give you another example. I really like examples. I, 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 in all my books, I use examples because I really think it's not enough to have information. It, you really have to see how this information applies to different people. So I'm going to tell you about someone I'm calling Tessa. Again, not her real name. So, so she came to me and she described a pattern that was lifelong of using food to cope with life. Her parents were immigrants, and they were really intent on succeeding in America, in the West. And as a result, they were hypercritical of, of everything she did because she had to be perfect to be successful. And their intentions were good, 
But as Tessa herself noted, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, as the saying goes. So they were trying to motivate her to succeed by being critical. Now, maybe you can relate to that because I hear from a lot of people who are like, I'm not mean to myself. I'm just motivating myself. Oh, really? And how's that working? Would you motivate anyone else in this way? Oh, no, I'd never speak this way to anyone else. Yeah. Yeah. So with Tessa's parents, nothing was ever good enough for them. Nothing. And that left her feeling worthless and full of shame. And again, shame is a sense that there is something wrong with you, your basic essential being, not that there's something wrong with what you did. That's guilt. Shame is worse. Shame is about your your sense of self. So as an adult, you can probably guess what I'm about to share. Whenever she made even a minor mistake, she would tell herself things like, oh, you idiot. You're so stupid. You're so incompetent. And this would, you know, escalate into a full-blown, like, self-attack crisis, and and she would panic about what's going to happen. I made the mistake, and imagine all kinds of horrible things, catastrophic things that were going to happen as a result of her usually very minor mistake, and then she would be just enraged with herself. Uh, Again, there's a theme here because Tessa was treating herself the way her parents treated her. She lacked any kind of internalized compassion to counterbalance these self-attacks. There was no reasonable voice because she came from a culture that really wasn't about feelings. Like nobody had time for feelings. It was just do, achieve, accomplish all the time. And so when she when she just felt as if she was falling short of, of her goals in life or when she'd made a mistake or when she just started attacking herself, that's the time when she desperately headed to the kitchen and she binged on chips, cookies, ice cream, whatever was there. This was a way for her to emotionally check out, absolutely check out, just go numb from these overwhelming emotions. And it was a way to drown out that inner critic. So by disidentifying with the internalized parents, she was able to break free from this shame binge cycle that created so much self-hatred. When she was able to say, well, you know, if someone else made this mistake, how would I, how would I feel about that? And usually she was like, oh, it's not a big deal. Somehow when it was her mistake, she treated herself as her parents had treated her. When it was someone else's mistake, she was so understanding. Totally understood, totally compassionate, like, you know, reasonable. She was unreasonable with herself and reasonable with everybody else. When she was able to see uh, that that she was treating herself in an unreasonable way that was not motivational, that was not beneficial, it was actually leading her to to binge. She was able to be kinder to herself, be more reasonable, speak to herself as she would to anyone else who made a mistake or missed a beat or whatever. And the binging stopped because the self-hatred stopped. Also, binge eating can be a form of self-punishment. So by overeating to the point where you're in actual physical pain, you know, where you're just not, not only are you you unbuttoning your, your jeans or whatever, but you are in 
physical pain and you feel like you are going to burst. It's often a way of punishing yourself for the quote unquote crime that is not a crime of not being good enough. So unconsciously binging to the point where you're in physical pain converts emotional pain to physical pain. And this this just reinforces the feelings of worthlessness and and perpetuates that cycle of binge eating and self-hatred, right? I hate myself because I binge and I binge because I hate myself. What to do? Let me tell you about John. So one of the first things John actually, again, not his real name. One of the first things John told me was, I hate myself. I feel like the worst person ever, he said. He, he, he actually said, I feel sorry for you, Dr. Nina, that you have to deal with me. Can you imagine? Poor John. My heart just went out to him in that moment. Okay, so back to the past when John's father was dealing with unemployment, alcoholism, depression, would often talk about how he wasn't good enough, would would feel himself to be inadequate, would would feel himself to be weak, the, the father, and full of self-loathing um, because he was unable to provide for his family. And so John, he never said anything bad to John. Right? He never said, John, you're you're not good enough. Not never. But this was his role model. This was John's role model. And growing up with an emotionally, um, you know, broken, uh, broken spirited role ma- model really shaped John's identity. And he, he came to believe that men must continually prove that they are strong and successful and competent and that guys can never show signs of vulnerability. It was almost as if if he were vulnerable, if he had any sense of weakness, that he was just, you know, on the level of his father. And so he too created a brutal inner critic and attacked any perceived failures or weaknesses or real failures, because we all have those two and he he looked at it as there's something wrong with him. Um, and his inner voice, because we all have that inner critic, sometimes that critic is too loud. We need a little bit of an inner critic, you know, a smidge keeps keeps us in line. But when the inner critic takes over and is responsible for our sense of self-worth, then it's a problem. So John's inner critic constantly judged him and mocked him for never achieving enough. And when John's business hit financial struggles during the pandemic, that inner voice went on the attack, overwhelming him with self-directed disgust and shame. He called himself pathetic. He called himself disgusting. He called himself, you know, any bad name you can think of, boy, John was calling himself something horrible. And what did he do? He binged on pizza. He did a whole pizza, basically punishing himself with those painful stomach aches. He felt so bad about himself that he needed to punish himself. And again, this is not conscious. No one is going like, I feel really bad about myself. Let me order pizza and have the whole thing and actually eat it all until I'm in physical pain because that will be an adequate punishment for my emotional 
failings. No, nobody thinks that. It's unconscious. It's out of awareness, but not out of operation, which is why we want to make it in awareness. So we came to realize that John's stomach aches, uh, that w- which came from eating the whole pizza, were, were his way of punishing himself and feeling literal pain for failing to live up to his harsh standards of being a man. And he realized, you know, during this process, he he realized, we realized that this self-hatred was a way of defending himself against the pain of being disappointed in his father. If he was disappointed with himself all the time, he never had to deal with the fact that he actually was very disappointed in his father. He didn't have a strong role model. He had a father he felt to be... um you know, as he put it, pathetic and weak. And this was really, really hard for him to to look at. It was easier for him to attack himself than to grieve the father he never had and the father he had. Grieving, by the way, is, you know, is first it's denial. <gasps> that doesn't bother me. I know what my father is. I know how he is. And I know that it doesn't affect me whatsoever. And then eventually anger. I'm actually really angry that my father never got it together and did the thing so that I could respect him. Bargaining. Maybe if I, you know, uh, do. maybe if I'm successful, that makes up for my father's lack of success. Maybe it wasn't his fault. Maybe like all that back and forth. And then depression. Oh, my God. I really did not have a dad that I wanted or needed. That's depressing. And finally, acceptance, which is, okay, my father too was a fallible human being. He came to realize, came to accept that, not happy about it, but had mourned and grieved through the father he had and also the father he never had. He never got, he had to grieve the father he never had, which was the, the the person he could look up to, want to be like, the father who would be engaged with him, who would show him the way, who would, you know, lead by example, or maybe even go throw a football with him. He never got that father. And he had to also mourn and grieve that. And as he accepted his father's fallibility and perfectly imperfectness, he was able to also accept himself. And the more accepting of himself he was, the less he had to punish himself with a pizza. And the less he binged and the better he felt. And moral of the story is being mean to yourself is never motivational. And I I often hear when I when people say, well, I'm just motivating myself. And they'll say things like, you are so stupid. Why can't you get it together? What's wrong with you? You know, things like that. And I say, okay, if your kids or your best friend made that same mistake or say they even binged, would you say that to them? Oh, no, I would never say such a harsh thing. Yeah, so why are you saying it to yourself? Do not speak to yourself in that way. So John had to come to terms with his disappointment and work through it and get more comfortable with his own, um, you know, 
the, the, the areas of his life where he was also disappointed or things that he had no control over, like, say, a pandemic that affected his business. So as you can see, so far, talked about understanding the roots of self-hatred, looking at binge eating as a form of escape and a form of punishment. I'm going to take a short break right now. And when we come back, we're going to talk about not feeling good enough, uh, other things, and then how to continue talking about how to create change. If you are with me on Instagram, you can stay with me. You could ask me a question during the break. Um, I'll, for, for those of you who are listening on Voice America, I'll be back in two minutes. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you tired of the endless cycle of dieting and binging? Ready to break free from emotional eating and regain control of your life? Look no further than The Binge Cure with Dr. Nina, the transformative radio show that will empower you on your journey to food freedom. Dr. Nina is here to guide you every step of the way. Join her as she delves into the true causes of binge eating, uncovers hidden triggers, and gives you effective strategies for lasting change. With practical tips and inspiring stories of transformation, The Binge Cure with Dr. Nina will help you nurture a healthier mindset, embrace self-compassion, and rediscover your true self. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to The Binge Cure with Dr. Nina. Have questions for Dr. Nina? Join her on the show at 866 472 5792. That's 866 472 5792. Now back to the show. Hey there, welcome back to The Binge Cure with Dr. Nina. I'm your host, Dr. Nina Savelle Rocklin, and we are talking about self-loathing and binge eating and how to break free. Talked about understanding the roots of self-hatred, how they go back off into childhood, and it's not about blame, it's about explain, it's about understanding how maybe you internalize certain messages and now that is affecting you the way that you're now treating yourself, the way you were treated, and often binge eating, food, whatever is a way of escaping that inner critic. And I've given lots of examples. We've talked about binge eating as a form of escape, that inner critic or anything uncomfortable, and binge eating as a form of punishment. Um, 
uh, I have a question on Instagram. Kate, do I do emotional focused, emotionally focused therapy? I'm a psychoanalyst. I'm a depth psychologist. And that means that I uh, help people understand the way that they relate to themselves. So I, in terms of binge eating, it's not what you're eating that is the problem. It is what's eating at you. And often what's eating at you is hidden from you. You don't know that you're even being triggered, but you're, you, you think you're being triggered by food, but something is going on that triggers you. And often before we can reach conscious awareness of that, we go to food for escape. Um, and comfort, uh, to go numb, all the things. And so what I help people do often is identify those hidden roots, identify your why, because it's all about why you're eating, not what you are eating, identifying why and learning new ways of responding to yourself, learning new ways of expressing your, so identifying it, expressing it, and responding to yourself so that you heal your relationship with yourself, as you could tell from all of these examples of, of people that I've treated. When you heal your relationship with yourself and you treat yourself differently, binge eating stops. Binge eating is not about willpower. It is not about control. It is not about addiction. And it's not even about food, as you can tell. So let's continue and talk about self-hate, self-loathing, and binge eating. I hope that that answers your question, Kate. Okay, so let's talk about not feeling good enough. There's another thing I hear all the time. I'm not good enough. I, I, will, I won't be good enough until, yeah. until I lose X amount of weight, until I get a better job, until I, uh, you know, get married or have a kid or some something that you haven't accomplished yet, then you'll be good enough. Or when I have more friends or when I change this about me, then I'll be good enough. What the heck is good enough? That's my question for you. Um, and by the way, if you would like to join me, I forgot to say this, if you'd like to join me, the number is 866 uh, 472 5792-866-472-5792 if you'd like to ask me a question about this topic or anything else that is occurring to you. Uh, so some of us have such rigid, perfectionistic standards for ourselves that are impossible to meet. Impossible. And falling short of these, these standards, which are like way up in the stratosphere, that no actual human could, could meet. Um, that leads to that chronic self-criticism, feelings of failure, and deep disappointment in yourself, as if you're somehow not good enough. You're not where you're supposed to be. This creates self-hatred. When you never feel good enough, you never feel like you're where you're supposed to be. By the way, where is that? Then it's easy to make yourself a target for yourself. Perfectionists are super hard on themselves. Understatement of the century, right? Super hard. Relentlessly hard on themselves. Expecting to succeed spectacularly in every part of life all the time. Whether it's school or parenting or career or whatever it is, hobbies, whatever it is, it, a perfectionists demand excellence 24-7. And falling short of that top-tier performance threatens their sense of worth. And despite tons of wins often, they don't see that. They just see where they're not. 
and they feel like losers inside. Let me give you an example. Long time ago, I had a friend who was married to a, a director, and he was nominated for an Emmy. Pretty cool, right? He was nominated for an Emmy. Yay him. But do you think he was happy? Oh, heck no. He was not happy. He was depressed. Why was he depressed? Because it was an Emmy. And oh, also, it was a daytime Emmy, not an Oscar. So even though here is someone who is making a living as a director in L.A., and this business is hard to break into as, as a director, even though he had all that, nothing was ever good enough for him. So even if he won that Emmy, which he didn't, but he got nominated, which is a huge deal. Even if he had won that Emmy, he would have felt terrible and like a failure because it was a daytime Emmy, not a nighttime Emmy. And even if he'd been nominated for a nighttime Emmy, let me tell you what would have happened. He would have been depressed because it wasn't the Oscars. And if he had been nominated for an Academy Award and even won it, he would have been depressed if he didn't win all the awards. That's perfectionism. They are no longer married. Just saying. Okay. So it's as if you've got to be perfect all the time and never miss a beat. And not only this, this, this is impossible. Not only is this impossible, it leads you to feeling bad about yourself, judging yourself harshly. And of course, that negatively impacts your self-esteem. So in a sense, if you're a perfectionist, you feel like you've got to earn your right to be lovable and loved and good enough by constantly meeting these perfectionistic standards, which of course are impossible to meet. So what is the antidote to perfectionism? What do you do about it? The antidote to perfectionism and the self-hatred that goes with it is cultivating, I call it radical self-compassion. Radical self-compassion. That means challenging those perfectionist thoughts and beliefs by identifying the unrealistic standards that you have set for yourself and questioning their validity and usefulness over and over and over and over again. This is not something that you just do once and go like, oh, I've restructured my cognitive, you know, <laughs> my, co my cognitive beliefs are completely changed now because I challenged it. No, it's not logical. It's psychological. Logically, you probably know if you're a perfectionist and you're listening to this, you probably know these are not reasonable ideas for, that, that would hold up for anybody else, but somehow they're reasonable for you. You know they're not reasonable, but they feel reasonable. So it's not logical. Logic is what you know. It's psychological, which is what you feel, the knowledge you feel. Um, so over and over and over again, recognizing them and challenging them, recognizing them and challenging them. Would you hold up anyone else to those standards? No. Recognizing it and challenging it. I, I like to, I like the analogy of uh, like planting a seed. Like you plant a seed deep in the ground and then you water it and you water it and you water it. You don't water it once and expect it to sprout. You have to water it and water it and water it and you keep looking at the ground going, is anything happening in there? Is anything growing? <laughs> What's happening? But you don't see anything. So you just keep watering. Water, 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 water. And eventually, 
ah, it sprouts and then it keeps growing. So the process of therapy is similar. You have to go over and over and over the same thing, water, water, water. It may not, you may not be able to tell that you are creating any growth, but you are. And eventually there it is. You see, you, you see the result of all of that. So that's just my little segue about the process of therapy. But anyway, when you recognize the expectations for what they are, totally irrational ideas that disconnect you from your humanity, really, you can slowly create change. And that means speaking kindly to yourself, flaws and all, and gradually cultivating that radical self-acceptance, which is, hey, I don't have to be perfect to be good enough. Let me tell you about Zaya. Again, not her real name. So she held herself up to some really high standards across every part of her life. She was a busy working mom with two kids, and yet she demanded of herself flawless performance in every area of her life as an employee, as a wife, as a mom, as a friend. She had to be great. And, and, and if she had a hobby, she had to be the best at it. It, ha it had to be perfect. And she was constantly dissatisfied with herself. So like if, if, if the house wasn't immaculate, she'd feel like she wasn't a good, like she wasn't taking care of the house. If her kids got like an A minus or a B, she felt like a bad mom. And at work, anything minor that she did, she felt incompetent, ashamed. And she would tell herself that she was so disorganized. No wonder she was struggling. She would just say mean things. She would just say, you're such a loser. <laughs> like just horrible things to herself. Or, or she'd say, well, you're, you're, and notice my pronoun, right? You're, you're never going to become managing director if you keep messing up like this. You're. So notice how she used the pronoun you. She didn't say, I'm never going to be managing director if I keep messing up. No, she said you. And when we talk to ourselves in that second person voice, it is often a sign that our inner critic is in charge of our thoughts, by the way. So if you can catch yourself doing that, I suggest changing it to I. It's harder to be mean to ourselves often in first person I than it is second person. Just a little aside. Okay, back to Zaya. So ultimately, because of her perfectionism, she felt empty and bad and like a failure every single day. And she never looked at her accomplishments. She never like looked down the, the ladder of life and went, oh, wow, look how far I've come. Doing pretty well. <laughs> yeah, I want to keep going. I want to I be up there. But, but no, it was, it was never like, wow, I've, I've come a long way. I'm really proud of myself. It was always, why am I not there? Or why didn't I do that perfectly? And so because of this chronic just slave driving and, and, and she felt inadequate and she would eat for comfort at the end of every stressful day because she stressed herself out and then she ended up eating for comfort just, just again, you see the theme here, to escape her own mean, horrible, perfectionistic, vicious voice. So we had to dial down those perfectionistic tendencies. We had to keep evaluating that self-talk, evaluating those unrealistic expectations, challenging that harsh inner critic. 
again, it's the same. It, it's not just once. It's not just twice. It's not 10 times. It's over and over and over and over. Another thing I, I hear all the time is, oh, Dr. Nina, you must get so sick of hearing the same thing over and over. I keep talking about the same thing. Yeah, of course. But every time you're talking about the same thing, you are, you, you're, you're challenging it just a little bit. There, there's the, the only way to create change is repetition. And that's how you create change. It's like, how do you change a neuropathway? You, not just once, you got to have the same thought over and over and over and over. Just another analogy I really like is a ski, ski path. So a ski path is like, like the automatic thoughts you have, the automatic, mean, critical, harsh, horrible thoughts. You're going down that ski path. It's really easy. It doesn't take much to just go down that ski path and, and then you're going faster and faster and faster and there's no going back. So what we have to do is build a new ski path. And at first, it's hard. At first, you've got to you know, clear away the rocks, clear away the trees, make the path. And then it's still bumpy. You go over it and it's not smooth, you, but you, you keep going over and over and over. You keep, you keep skiing the same path. And eventually the other path starts filling up with snow. You can't go down it as easily. And the new path becomes easier and easier and easier to go down. That's my, my unique way of, of describing how you change your neural pathways. Now you've got a new path, ski path, neuropath. Um, and and so it, it I just can't stress enough that it it does take uh, repetition. And again, repetition. Zaya learned to change the way she thought. She got curious about where she came to have these perfectionist thoughts, and she started responding to herself with more grace with the way she treats other people. And she started actually appreciating her perfectly imperfect, sometimes quirky self. And her self-hatred softened into self-acceptance, right? And when that happened, she stopped binging or even overeating. Like she, she, her, her relationship with food totally normalized because she was no longer using food to escape her own toxic, mean voice. Now, the last thing I'm going to talk about is self-loathing as a defense mechanism. So in psychological terms, defense mechanism is really an, a, a protection. It's an unconscious strategy that our minds use to protect ourselves from difficult thoughts, feelings, realities, emotions, anything that we don't want to, we don't want to go there. Anything that feels too difficult to accept. And so self-loathing can be a way to cope with those feelings of inadequacy, guilt, or shame. What do I mean by that? For example, you might find yourself feeling really mad at yourself to deflect from feelings that of, of anger or other feelings towards someone else. Maybe if you hate yourself and you're busy hating on yourself, you're not thinking about oh, I feel hurt and abandoned and rejected or angry, right? We target ourselves and, and, and get mad at ourselves and hate ourselves so we don't hate anybody else. So you avoid dealing with those complicated underlying feelings, thoughts, et cetera, by focusing on you and what's wrong with you. 
And often what's wrong with you is, I can't believe I ate that. I can't believe I weigh that. It's a distraction, a protection from thinking thoughts about other people by attacking yourself. And also by, by, by uh, beating ourselves up internally, we feel like we won't be as, as vulnerable to other people's thoughts about us. Like if you already hate yourself and you think that you're horrible and someone else rejects you, you can tell yourself, I knew this would happen. So you're not surprised. So by rejecting yourself first with self-hatred, you believe you're cushioning yourself against potential rejection by others on some level. Again, not conscious. You're not going like, let me protect myself from this happening from without by attacking myself first. No, it just happens. That's what defense mechanisms are. They just are automatic. Um, let me tell you about Francine, my last example. She described an inner voice that continually just berated her, telling herself that she was worthless and stupid and she was going to end up a failure no matter what she did. And her last romantic relationship had ended suddenly when her partner abandoned her for someone else, very painful. And this brought up really intense feelings of rejection, obviously. <laughs> she was rejected, so she felt rejected, but also she felt rejectable and she felt abandoned and she felt angry and she felt all of these feelings that she was afraid to feel. Instead, she coped by attacking herself. She fixated on herself. Oh, they left me because I'm, I'm, I'm not as attractive as that other person. Oh, they left me because I'm fat. They left me because there's something wrong with me. They, they, they knew the real me and, and then they, and they, it wasn't for them. Um, she described herself as undesirable, too heavy, boring, and quote unquote, damaged goods. Harsh, right? Poor Francine. But here's the thing. By hating herself, Francine avoided confronting the grief and pain and betrayal she felt over her ex's decision to leave her for somebody else. And so self-loathing, self-hatred actually protected her from those feelings that were even more painful. So she also hoped, and this is again unconscious, but I'm dealing a lot with the unconscious today. She, she, she hoped that by attacking herself harshly, she was protecting herself against future reje rejection. If she already saw herself as worthless, no one else could could surprise her by calling her worthless. She already knew it, right? Like she was she was protecting herself by having mastery over uh, self loathing. So the self hate shielded her from facing her fear of being unwanted and unlovable in relationships by telling herself that she was unlovable and, and, and all of that. Like she protected herself from it happening to her by telling herself she didn't deserve love and all of that. And so finally, she grieved that relationship in a healthy way. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. She addressed her emotional needs regarding intimacy, all kinds of intimacy. And most importantly, she became kinder to herself. That's when she stopped binge eating. She didn't need to escape herself, escape her mind. She could be there for herself 
and cope with words. She could give herself comfort words instead of comfort food. So really understanding the complexities of self-hatred and binge eating and how they're intertwined, that is the first step towards healing. You know, you learn to hate yourself. How? How did you learn that? Maybe there's another way to think about it. And it also means embracing our flaws. We all have them. We all have them. <laughs> they, they often are what makes us interesting. Um, and learning to treat ourselves with the same kindness and compassion that we often offer to others. Remember, nobody is born hating themselves. Not you, not anybody. It is something you learned. And it is something you can unlearn and learn a new way. So challenge the idea that there is something essentially wrong with you. Challenge that. Where did you learn this? What's another way to think about it? And get on a path to learning new ways of responding to yourself, expressing yourself, responding to yourself. It makes all the difference. It sounds simple. It's not. It's hard to do. You know, it's like, yes, I just need to identify what's going on with me. What are my, what are the feelings and uh, express myself differently and then re respond, reassure, acknowledge, validate myself. Yeah. Sounds easy. It's, it, it takes practice, but like anything takes practice. Nobody gets up and, and, and runs a marathon. No one expects anyone to, to just say, I'm going to run a marathon. And then they run out, out literally and figuratively run out and run 26 plus miles. No. People say, I'm going to run a marathon. And they run a mile. And you're like, yes, you run a mile. That's awesome. Now just add to it. That's great. Same thing with all change. Want to just recognize that it is a process and like anything, it takes time, but it is well worth it when you cross that finish line and you come to a place where you feel um, a sense of self-acceptance, which includes loving yourself and also being okay with the parts of yourself you don't love so much. And remember, you can make this change. There is always hope. So that is our show for today. Thank you so much for joining me here on The Binge Cure with Dr. Nina. And I am here every Thursday at noon Pacific on Voice America's Health and Wellness channel. And if you want a deeper dive into this topic and way, way more, check out my best-selling book, The Binge Cure, Seven Steps to Outsmart Emotional Eating. And of course, the accompanying workbook, the journal. They are both available in at Amazon, as is my new coloring book, Color Yourself, oh, Color Yourself Confident. Got a new one coming in April, but I'll talk about that then. All right. Stay curious, not critical. I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of The Binge Cure with Dr. Nina. Each week, she offers valuable insights to stop emotional eating and give steps to lead a joyous life. Tune in next Thursday at 12 p.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.